Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a Halloween special of Cinematic Universe, uh, a podcast that's all about comic book movies brought to you by filmdivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Stephen Norrington's 1998 film, Blade. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept that, as a movie fan, I, I just don't understand. Guys, keeping it horror-themed, can you explain Marvel Zombies to me? Oh, God. A bad joke that got out of hand. <laughs> so, okay, just what happened was there used to be a term, I guess there still is a term, yeah. for someone who only reads Marvel comics. Uh, and like I was this person for probably ten years. But uh, basically, if you're a Marvel zombie, you just go into your shop, buy Marvel comics, and then leave. Right, okay. And, like, it's kind of a derogatory term for people who are obsessive about one thing and don't you know, don't try anything else in the industry. And kind of don't question what's in front of them, you know, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. So then at some point, I can't remember when it started, it feels like it's been going on forever, you know, sort of mid-2000s. I think it was earlier than that for reasons, but go on, uh, say what you say first. Yeah, it might might have been a bit earlier. But what happened was Mark Miller used them in his Ultimate Fantastic Four. Yeah, they run, well, isn't it? Yeah, I think I have a feeling we we should probably have looked this up and checked it, or it should be something we know. I think they first started doing it as a variant cover gag first, didn't they? They like no, they started no. doing variant covers that were like pastiches with zombies, didn't they? But then the, the what the Mark Miller thing was was that he teased in his Ultimate Fantastic Four run that they were going to do a storyline that crossed over the Ultimate Universe with the regular Marvel Universe. And this was at a point when that hadn't happened and when they had always maintained that it was never going to happen, unlike now. Um, (laughs) So for the first couple of issues of this storyline, you thought that Ultimate Reed Richards was communicating with the real Reed Richards. And then the twist was actually that it was a zombie evil version of Reed Richards from a universe where basically all of the Marvel characters had become evil zombies. Right, okay. And then they decided to make a miniseries out of that world. And yeah. then they decided to do another one. And another one. Like as and as an another idea, one. <laughs> as an idea, it's quite you know, it's quite good fun as one series. 
but they just ran it like seriously. They, if you can run any idea into the ground, they did it with this one. It had okay. a, I mean, it's it ended up being pretty big. I mean, I don't know about the later series, but the first series was um, written by Robert Kirkman, um, creator yeah. of The Walking Dead. Yeah. Appropriate. Um, yeah. <laughs> in fact, was it was it pre Walking Dead? Because it's from two thousand and five. When did Walking Dead start? It was just after Walking Dead started. Right. It was long before um, Walking Dead became like industry powerhouse Walking Dead. Yeah, and it's drawn by Sean Phillips, who's fantastic. He's the artist on Criminal and, and various other things. Yeah, yeah. Like that um, that first series is you know it's as fair a treatment as the concept as you hmm. can get. It's just every but every time seen... they revisited it. Yeah, you've never it. seen something run into the ground as <laughs> intensely as they have run it into the yeah. ground. So this came it came to my attention because Seth Graham Smith, who somehow has been handed the keys to direct the Flash, um, he uh, he wrote a Marvel Zombies comic at one point. Marvel Zombies Return Hulk. Isn't isn't he also the guy who did um, Pride and Prejudice versus Zombies? Pride and Prejudice versus Zombies, yeah, and and yeah. Abraham Lincoln, Vampire oh, Hunter, all that kind of God stuff. God, man, get a new shtick, seriously. <laughs> he is. He's going to direct the Flash. So that so so that will probably have zombies in it as well. <laughs> That'll be how they'll differentiate it from the TV show. I mean, I'm I'm just going to quickly do a list of all the Marvel Zombies series just so you can see <laughs> exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, I've just checked. It was September 2005 was the first appearance. Mm. Um, so they were in Ultimate Fantastic Four then they did Marvel Zombies Marvel Zombies versus the Army of Darkness Marvel Zombies Dead Days Marvel Zombies 2, Marvel Zombies 3 Marvel Zombies 4, Marvel Zombies Return, Marvel Zombies Evil <laughs> Evolution which was a crossover with Marvel Apes uh, Marvel Zombies 5 Marvel Zombies Supreme which I think was Chicken and White Wine uh, Marvel Zombies Destroy and then there was a Secret Wars Age of Ultron versus Marvel Zombies and that that brings us up to 2015. Okay, so let's move on now to take a look at some of the comic book movie and TV news for the past week. Um, for this section here, it's just me and James. Uh, through the magic of editing, Seb is departing us for this section, but rejoining us for the main discussion. Um, but James, uh, this week we got our first full look at the Jessica Jones trailer. And um, what did you think of it? It was so it's, it's our first kind of proper look at actual show footage of Kristen Ritter as Jessica Jones. Um, yeah. Is it fair to say you, you're a little bit underwhelmed? I wouldn't, I'm not underwhelmed as such. I'm just... I've got a lot of trepidation about it because I love the comics so much and this it looks like it's going to deviate quite a lot from from the things that I like about the comic hmm. which are principally around Jessica Jones and how she's portrayed so I didn't think it looked bad I just think it looked different to what I what I want out of a Jessica Jones TV series, so I think I'm going to have to recalibrate my expectations quite heavily. Yeah. I think it's, I think it, it's, it's interesting. <clears throat> we, I mean, we've spoken about this before, but we're quite clearly approaching this adaptation from different viewpoints because of Kristen Ritter, and I think you're still not sold on her particularly as Jessica Jones visually, and and now from the little you've seen of her performance. Whereas I. I'm not expecting the exact same Jessica Jones from the comics, but I'm expect I I can still see Kristen Ritter delivering something fairly close to that. But yeah, is, is she does she still seem like a problem for you? Yeah, to be honest, like that's that's the thing that is causing me to have a kind of disconnect with the material. It's sort of like she's she seems to be playing it as a kind of angry teenager. Where maybe maybe like that's just me getting old. 
And because like, I know she's what early twenties, is it? Uh, what the, the, the actress? Um, I think probably late twenties, to be honest. Oh, really? Be, yeah. Right, uh, yeah. No, yeah, eight, no, she was born in eighty one. So, <laughs> so she's older than yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, that makes me sound stupid then. She's just very youthful and pretty. <laughs> yeah, like I just, I kind of get the feeling that Jessica Jones should be less overtly angry with the world than Kristen Ritter's version seems. Oh, really? But Jessica Jones is always screaming in the comics. Like, she literally, when whenever that oh, kid yeah, yeah, comes yeah. to the office, she's always, like, just unloading on him. But she's angry at herself, whereas... Yeah. Well, like, she's got PTSD in the comic. Yeah. And that doesn't feel like what's, what's happening in the in the TV series. Like, I know they're clearly going for that to an extent because they had her having the flashbacks and stuff, but her her portrayal doesn't seem like someone in the grip of self, self-loathing like the comic version does. It's interesting because I, I just, I think I think we're just seeing opposite versions of the, the character from the trailer. And it might be that I'm just watching it through, like, rose-tinted spectacles <coughs> and, like, seeing what I'm hoping to see. But, um... I mean, the proof will be in the pudding. We're only a couple of weeks away now. Um, what about some of the other stuff that you saw in the trailer? What did you think of um, Mike Coulter's Luke Cage? Because oh, he, he he's was... not he's not an actor I knew very much of, and so this was kind of the first the first real sense I've got of him. Like Charlie Cox's Matt Murdock, he like as soon as he's on screen, you're like, oh, that's Luke Cage then. Yeah, like... which I wasn't expecting at all. I, I I just but yeah, as soon as I saw him in the trailer, I was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that seems like they've got that bang on. Yeah, like there's there's nothing about him I can criticise from what little we've seen. Like the the thing that interests me is that he doesn't appear to be a superhero when Jessica Jones meets him. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell. I mean, I've only watched the trailer. No, once, I mean it's but... it's hard to say. It doesn't sound to me like he's got superpowers. From what he's well, saying. it's interesting. He kind of asks her about powers, so it's either that. He is interested and kind of has discovered her powers, but maybe maybe he is interested because he has them, but maybe he's just not like out as a superhero. Yeah, I feel like even if he does, they're gonna keep they're gonna play it close to their chest and then maybe if they reveal it it'll be towards the end so well, that they can set up his series. I guess if yeah, I guess if you're a viewer who doesn't know very much about the character and then you kind of see like in the penultimate episode or in the finale, finally Luke Cage <laughs> Luke uses his powers. Mm-hmm. Um Hopefully not to come to like the rescue of uh, Jessica Jones <laughs> or anything like that because that would be horrendous. Yeah, but um, yeah, it would it would be quite nice if he you know kind of like it showed his hand and then people are suddenly like oh now I'm excited for a show where that character is the main guy. Yeah, I mean his powers are very easy to do on the TV budget as mm. well. So, and it seemed to me like that yes, um, Hellcat is going to be the direct replacement for Captain Marvel from from what we saw. We only got a very brief flash of Carrie Ann Moss, so it's still not entirely clear what she's doing. Yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, Luke, Luke Cage, it seemed to me like that maybe all of the love interests of Jessica Jones, or of Alias, are kind of being rolled into him in the show, that maybe don't expect um, <laughs> don't expect to see an, an extra character plugging in for Scott Lang, just expect to see a lot of Luke Cage. Yeah, yeah, I mean... You can see why that would make sense as well. Yeah. Um, and then the other notable thing about the trailer is that it, I mean, it is really heavy on Kilgrave, Purple Man stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is something that Seb expressed a bit of worry about on on Twitter and on emails between us. That it's talking about kind of like, he just hopes that it's not a full-on Purple Man series. And 
to an extent, I, I, I kind of agree with that as well, but I kind of think it will be because Daredevil doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about people who aren't Kingpin in Daredevil, <coughs> does no, he? They do, There's not yeah. any like story of the weeks or side plots. It's more of that classic Netflix, this is a 13-hour movie. Yeah, I mean, my my only criticism, really, of Daredevil, the TV series, was that I would have liked to have seen more sort of Matt Murdock in court case of the week, like I think it was episode two. Yes, where they yeah, did the yeah, whole yeah. court case episode. Like, I really... I was geared up for seeing a lot more of that than we got. And I think that's going to be the same in Jessica Jones. Like, we might might see one or two cases off the side, but pretty much everything she does, I think, is going to be tied into Kilgrave's return. Yeah. I mean, and to an extent, I'm fine with that, because, like, I... Unlike Seb, I was expecting a serious arc about Kilgrave. And, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm on board for that as well, because that, that's the Jessica Jones story. And if you're only going to do... Like, they don't know how many series they're going to do. So if you're going to tell the story, tell the story. Yeah, and, and I think I mentioned this before, that I, think, I just think Alias really kind of builds up ahead of steam the further and further you get into it and absolutely crescendos when it comes to, incl- you know, introducing the Purple Man and actually going through all that stuff. Yeah, um, like, those those first two arcs, like the Captain America and Rick Jones arcs, like, you know, they're fine. But yeah. the second half of Alias is where you're... You know that's where it really got got going, and and it, you know similar to reminding me of the stuff that Daredevil did. Daredevil pretty much spent an entire episode flashing back to Foggy and Matt in college, <laughs> um, and I mean you, there's lots of potential for flashbacks in Jessica Jones in going back to the original Kilgrave incident or going back to her. Um, origin story, um, mm-hmm. which they're going to have to change. Um, <laughs> this secret origin of Jessica Jones, but yeah, the, there's there's potential for that kind of stuff in there as well. Um, and, I do, uh, I do hope we get a proper proper episode of her as Jewel, like in the costume. That's that's one of the things on my wish list for the for the series. That yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, um, I I think they have actually cast a young Jessica Jones, so okay. we we might be getting some kind of flashback at some point interesting um i mean and I, I i don't know whether these you know names have all been confirmed now but we kind of got you know the the second episode is uh, the the penultimate episode is rumored to be called aka jewel and the power man so um uh, there's also an episode called aka the Kumbaya circle jerk so uh <laughs> and aka top shelf perverts let's hope they're not being too literal with that then <laughs> And aka the sandwich saved me. So I, I mean, the, uh, yeah, I'm I'm still massively looking forward to this show. I, like, I think it's the comic book property full stop that I'm looking forward to most seeing at the moment. Like, besides any of the countless films in production, yeah, I'm just I'm I mean, just excited for this. <laughs> I don't want to give the impression that I'm not not at all excited or interested. Like, I'm a little yeah. bit trepidatious. Yeah, I'm just I'm trying to manage my expectations because, like I say, when when me and Seb ran our old blog, which was uh, alternate cover, uh, which is still there if you want to go and find it, uh, <laughs> we uh, in 2010 we did a best comics of the decade sort of discussion between ourselves, and we picked the ten ten series we thought had been best, and yeah. unanimously we came to the conclusion that Alias was pretty much the best thing that Marvel or DC had done uh, in the past ten years. So you know that's the that's the depth of affection I've got. 
I don't want to do down the recommendations that you and Seb give me on the podcast, but I kind of like independently went and read Alias because you told me it was great. <laughs> um, uh, and this Jessica Jones series was coming. And it yeah. still is the, I think it's still the comic that I have enjoyed <clears throat> reading the most. To the fact that it's to the point that it's 28 issues long and I've gone back and read it again and bought the hardback cover, you know, the, the hardback copy. And um, yeah, I just absolutely adore everything about it. So yeah, I'm just, I'm just looking looking mm-hmm. forward to this so much. Um, let's move on to our next piece of news now, and it's all TV news this, this week. Um, <laughs> and this is something I mentioned on the mini-side uh, last week, um, and actually broke just after we put out our X-Men First Class episode, um, <laughs> which is that... Um, uh, Fox and Marvel have come to an agreement. We don't know why they've come to that agreement. Apparently, it's not Fantastic Four rights. Um, but we, <laughs> <laughs> they've come to an agreement that Fox can now make mutant TV shows. And this isn't going to be like a uh, Wolverine Origins TV show, and it's not. It's not going to be like a um, an X Men First Class TV show. It's going to be. We're going to get one called Hellfire, which has been developed for Fox. And we're going to get one called Legion, which is being developed for FX. And Legion is actually being uh, showrun by Noah Hawley, who is uh, currently uh, showrunning the excellent Fargo TV series. Um, so, I mean, I, I mentioned what the kind of briefly what these are about on the mini side, but Hellfire is going to be following a, a Hellfire club in a 60s period setting, whereas Legion is following um, the X-Men character of the same name. Um, so James, do you want to do you want to add a little bit more context around what you think these shows could do, and or like whether we should be excited for either of them? Yeah. So we talked about how the Hellfire Club is quite a prominent organisation in the comics on the last podcast. Um, so I can sort of see why you would do a story set in that sort of world. Like, and it's kind of ripped off from the the, the well, Avengers, this is, yeah, the 60s this is what TV I was about to get to. as well. Like, if I was doing a Hellfire Club TV series, for a start, it would be set in the modern day. And I can't, I don't understand why they're going back to the 60s, especially when they've explicitly killed off the members of the 60s Hellfire Club in the movie franchise. But do we, I mean, we know it's going to be a mutant TV series, but do we know whether it's going to be X-Men canon? Because what if it's just not? Well, yeah. Or what if they just recast or just don't I mean, give a shit? I, or what I just, if it's set prior to first class? Again, all like all possible, but you would imagine if they're doing if they're doing a mutant TV series based on existing characters, they're going to have some like if you're basically if you're doing a Hellfire Club TV series, Sebastian you, Shaw and Emma Frost. Yeah, if you're not there. using Shaw and Frost, why are you bothering? Basically, mm. so like I can see I can see that they might. I tell build, you what, I bet Kevin Bacon you. and January Jones are available. <laughs> I imagine so. But yeah, I can see why you'd build a story around like the power play and sort of backstabbing of that world. What I can't see is why you'd set it in the 60s, aside from the fact that it's all ripped off that one Avengers episode called A Touch of Brimstone, I think it was, Hmm. uh, where Chris Claremont saw that episode, stripped out the CIA elements and wrote them into the the, uh, X-Men universe. And then now they're they're spinning them back out into the TV. Like, it's a bizarre... Bizarre yeah. path that those that concept has taken. Yeah. What about Legion, which is being developed for FX? So, um, and you know, I spoke about Noah Hawley showing it. Um, that's encouraging to me to start with. And then Legion, I understand in the comics is Professor X's son, but they could kind of go either way with that with the TV show. 
Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's very odd because Legion as a character is kind of, they haven't done much with him until very recently when he got his own series. But basically his, his power is like, he's super powerful. He's got multiple personalities and every personality has a different mutant power. Which seems like a great setup for a TV. It's Dollhouse, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can instantly, you can see where that, that goes into a kind of power of the week, encounter of the week TV series. Hmm. The problem is Legion in himself has never been interesting except as the son of Professor X. So they're going to have to rework the concept quite significantly, I imagine. To or could you just ignore everything else and just go, this is a mutant and he gets a different power every week? Yeah, you could. And like you could build a mythos around that, certainly. Whether it would be interesting to fans of the franchise, I don't know. But then, you know, statistically, there aren't that many X-Men fans compared to people who might watch it on TV. So, you know, no one's going to be upset that they're doing a different version of Legion because he's just not that sort of character. And so, I mean, are you, are you particularly sold on either of these shows? Or, like, anything... If I had to watch either, I would watch the Hellfire TV show. I will watch them both, at least yeah. the first episodes. Okay, well, um, I think that brings us to the end of our uh, our news section for this week. Um, we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Blade when Seb will rejoin us. Uh, but before we dive in, let's listen to the trailer for the movie. You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topic. There is another world beneath it. The real world. For thousands of years, they have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in with a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them. Now, one will lead them to conquer mankind. Tonight, the age of man comes to an end. We're going to be gods. And one will try to stop him dead. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Half human. Blade's mother was attacked by a vampire while she was pregnant. Half immortal. You got the best of both worlds. All our strengths. None of our weaknesses. He is their greatest fear. And our only hope. It's open season on all vampires. Okay, so that was the trailer for Blade. Uh, this is the uh, 1998 Marvel movie um, directed by Stephen Norrington, written by David S. Goyer, um, and starring Wesley Snipes as the titular Blade. Um, and guys, I think before we dive into it, I mean, and given that this is our Halloween special, I think it would, I think it would probably be a good place to start to actually look at vampires in marvel comics because i have read uh spider-man comics where is it morbius is he the vampire in spider-man that's shown up yes he yeah is. so i've kind of been aware of it and i've heard about x-men stories where dracula shows up and i know that dracula is the villain in blade trinity as well so what 
how how do vampires tie into the Marvel universe? Are they just there all the time, but only certain characters end up interacting with them? Yeah, um, pretty much. Like there, Marvel does have its version of Dracula, obviously, because he's you know public domain. <laughs> public domain. Yeah. So they've got Dracula in there, and they've got a whole mythology built up around their version of vampires. It's not very interesting, to be honest. It's kind of <laughs> they um, they initially weren't actually connected to the Marvel Universe to begin with they had sort of in the I mean it depends how detailed you want me to go in terms of a, a history of horror comics all of the details give me all of the <laughs> details I love details okay so to okay so to give you a brief this is this is something I was going to explain later under different circumstances but we might as well get it out of the way now so horror comics really started to get big in comics in the early 1950s um because basically the superhero fad had died out pretty much with the end of the Second World War and the new genre that came along that really took off in comics was horror and this was predominantly down to a company called EC um, and they published things like Tales from the Crypt and The Vault of Horror which you may well have heard of because of the film adaptations of them Mm. Um, and for about for a good five years or so they were the absolute biggest thing in comics like those comics were as big as the biggest superhero comics had been in the 40s it's almost like the walking dead being the biggest show on television (laughs) a little bit yeah um and what basically happened was in the mid 1950s and this is far too big a story to get into in fact there's there's a whole book about it called the 10 cent plague that is massively worth reading um (laughs) but there was a massive panic and scare over the influence that that comics in general and horror comics specifically were having on children uh, largely led by uh, an academic called frederick wortham um, and essentially in the mid- discredited fi- academic yeah <laughs> actually to be fair to frederick wortham he changed his tune quite significantly much later in life but the damage was done by then a lot the, th- the problem was is that a lot of the reasons that he went after horror comics for while they were great were kind of valid in terms of how they weren't really suitable for children but were being sold to children but uh, but the whole of comics were being treated as trash that was corrupting the minds of the nation's youth um and essentially in the mid-1950s the comics code authority was set up and a set of guidelines were drawn up that basically if publishers didn't agree to um their books would essentially be blacklisted um and nowhere would sell them um and essentially this this had two effects one it basically drove ec comics out of business because you basically couldn't publish any of the kind of stuff that they were publishing it was things like you couldn't use the words crime in a yeah in the title of a comic Um, it was like it was that that draconian yeah and it sort of it it neutered comics for quite a long time afterwards basically until everyone realised that no one was paying attention to the comics code anymore <laughs> um, but also what it, what it kind of then had the side effect of was it basically revived the superhero genre because comics publishers needed to publish yeah, something else. You couldn't do anything else Yeah so that, that kind of led to you know um, the creation of Marvel and the revival of DC but it led to the death of EC which was a massive shame because basically all the most talented people working in comics in the 50s were working at EC. And actually DC had been publishing horror comics as well. They'd launched, they'd had a series called The House of Mystery, um, which ran in the 1950s. So horror comics basically died out in the 50s, but in the early 70s, the um, like horror in general was becoming popular, you know, kind of in cinema and stuff. Mm. And the rules of the comics code began to be relaxed a little bit like they could get away with actually publishing horror comics so obviously ec were long gone but dc brought back house of mystery and marvel decided to kind of jump on the trend by starting to publish a kind of line of horror comics one of which was a dracula comic all right Uh, dracula yeah the tomb of dracula and initially it was entirely separate from the marvel universe but gradually they started to fold it in and it's still he hasn't interacted much 
with the Marvel Universe over the decades, but he has popped in and out here and there. Uh, and Blade is the most obvious example. Blade was a character that was actually introduced in Tomb of Dracula as a supporting character, right. and then who eventually became popular enough to you know to spin off on his own. And so, other characters. I mean, would, would it be right to assume then that kind of think characters like Ghost Rider and Swamp Thing come out of that kind of era as well? Definitely. I mean, Swamp Thing is absolutely from that tradition. I mean, like some of the people, um, like Bernie Wrightson, who worked on early Swamp Thing, had been working on horror comics in the seventies. It's that that mid to late seventies horror comics tradition definitely spawned things like I mean you were saying before the before we hit record you were saying about how Howard the Duck was in the list of Marvel horror characters Mm. that's because he first appeared in an issue of Swamp Thing yeah yeah uh, no, man, man thing because Swamp Thing's DC. Man thing, yeah. <laughs> Whoops. So, who are the biggest characters, kind of, that survive now or that are still popular now that came out of this like horror revival? Uh, I mean, I um, guess at Marvel and DC. I would say it's probably he probably is Ghost Rider and Swamp Thing, and and Blade to an extent. And but I think in <clears> all, <throat> in all the hmm. in well, <laughs> Blade because of the movies though. Um, yeah. Does it? Yeah. What, so, so let's let's move on specifically to Blade because. I've never seen him pop up in a comic, and I've never been... I, I can't remember the last time that I've actually seen, like, a physical Blade comic, and I, I guess they must exist, but, like, is Blade a character who has been published right now, or has he been recently, or... He and, has, he has, has he ever been recently, been but not really big. because of being Blade, so much as, um, in about the last decade, pe- a thing that, that isn't there in the movie, but that people have gone back to, is the fact that Blade is... British in the comics, um, okay. and that actually makes him technically Marvel's first British superhero because he predates Captain Britain by a few months. Where is um, is he from? Anywhere in Britain in particular? He was he? born in a in a brothel in Soho. That's awesome. In the ni- in the nineteen twenties, was it? So nineteen tens, the early twentieth century. Yeah, there's been a couple of instances where first in um, Paul Cornell's Captain Britain and MI thirteen, which one of these days we'll find an excuse to recommend to you on the podcast <laughs> for the sake of getting you to read that, and then more recently um, in Al Ewing's Mighty Avengers series, um, there was a character whose identity was a mystery. Um, for a few issues, and then it was revealed to be Blade, basically. Right, okay. So he came out of this 70s thing. So when Was that his big period on the page? Was that when he was really popular on the page? Or did he have a revival in the 90s that led to someone going, hey, he, let's give Stephen Norrington $40 million to make a movie about this guy? He, he basically started showing up in Ghost Rider, and because Ghost Rider was popular in the early 90s, mm there was that kind of brief revival of interest in the horror line. Yeah, they had a whole line of books called Midnight Suns, which was all these like horror characters sort of forming an ad hoc team. Because it does, it does seem kind of bizarre looking back now and thinking, mm. I mean, yeah, sure, we're now, we're now at the point in comics where you can like spin off one obscure X-Men character or you can you know, dig deeper into the Marvel vaults for characters or you can, you can set a film around the Guardians of the Galaxy or the Inhumans, but... This was 1998 when I mean this is so this is this is pre the superhero movie revival with X Men and mm. Spider Man. So why were they making a Blade movie? It just seems it just seems like su- such an obscure choice. I think to be fair, the reason they made a Blade movie is because it wasn't really a superhero. Like <laughs> it, Blade as a concept stands alone fairly well. And this mm. is during the era when Marvel were just selling off their rights to basically anyone to stay out of bankruptcy. Right. And, fr- and from what I've read, basically, well, there were, as we mentioned, kind of early 90s, Blade at least had a bit of a resurgence. And from what I gather, it started to be developed as a film property because LL Cool J wanted to do it. Right, okay. <laughs> 
it's really interesting if you look at um, David Descoyer's uh, screenwriting credits so he'd He'd written uh, The Crow City of Angels in 1996. Um, and then in 1998, he had two uh, two superhero movies, two Marvel movies. Uh, one was Blade, which made it to cinemas. The other only made it to TV, and that was Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> um, the, the David Hasselhoff one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he had The Crow, Nick Fury, Blade, Blade 2, and Blade Trinity on his CV before he got the Batman Begins gig, which is just astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more David Escoria as we go through this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, am I, am I right in saying? Uh, am I right in thinking that none of us had actually seen Blade before we recorded? Before we, you know, decided no. to do it on the podcast? It's it's just because it's it's a genre that I just have no interest in whatsoever. And despite all the talk about it, yeah, I'd, I'd never seen any of the Blade films. Yeah, see, even even in the late '90s when I was like peak Marvel nerd. I was not remotely interested in watching a film about Blade. Like, that's the level of kind of popularity he has within the comics industry. Mm. Like, you just, you can't give him away. One of the reasons, I'm sure one of the reasons that his identity was being kept a secret in Mighty Avengers was because that was the only way to make people buy a Blade comic. (laughs) Um, see, I've seen Blade Trinity before, but that's it. So uh, we're, st- we're definitely going to have to get to Blade 2 at some point, because I think that might be the only Guillermo del Toro movie I haven't seen as well. So and I'm, I'm fairly sure that's the most like critically revered. Um, but yeah, so so what did you guys think of it generally? Were you were you won round by the movie after having avoided it for so long? I, I would say that it was about what I would expect from a movie written by the writer of Man of Steel and directed by the director of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> uh, spoilers I'm not sure for uh, two better than either of them. <laughs> spoilers for two of our future episodes there, Seb. <laughs> Although I'm not sure people I will be particularly League surprised. Of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, James? Was it was it any better or worse than you were expecting? Uh, I would say it was a lot worse than I was expecting. Right. Okay. People, I'm, like, I'm people talk about this as yeah. as like, oh, this was the film that turned it around for comics and showed that you could make a good film out of a comic book. Like, did it? Because it didn't look like a good film to me. Well, um, I mean, I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. It's kind of like in the 50s. Um, and uh, the second one is, is slightly higher. Um, I've got to say, uh, that, like, while I did find certain elements of this film inept, um, I, I kind of really did enjoy it. And I found elements of it to appreciate. And... Um, I, it, to me, it kind of seemed like I, I, I almost wish it was a film that I'd seen in the cinemas, you know, a, around that time that I could have just gone and, you know, spent five pounds because that's how much cinema tickets cost back then. Maybe not <laughs> even that. Um, and uh, and yeah, just got a got a big old bag of popcorn and just sat there and uh, and, and had a, a load of fun with it because it was just to me it just seemed like a really fun throwaway entertaining movie. Um that See, I kind absolutely of, came out of the late 90s. I kind of got the feeling that it didn't have much of a sense of humour about itself and it thought that was it kind was of my being much cooler it, than it was. Yeah. Like, it was it was striving very hard to be like, oh, look how badass and awesome this is. Mm. But it was just coming across really sort of needy and comically There was no wit, wit about it, really. Sort of, it's just... And it's like, not every, you know, comic book film has to be witty per se, but I think I think any superhero or superhero inspired thing that doesn't that you know that that kind of tries to make out that at heart they're not inherently ludicrous i think is on a bit of a hide into nothing 
to me it just it, it didn't it didn't feel like a superhero movie in any way to me though it felt well, like it felt like a 90s star vehicle where let's put a badass action hero in the middle of things and let's treat him like he is the coolest thing in the world which Wesley Snipes is pretty damn cool in this movie and pretty damn cool generally apart from when he's evading tax but normally Wesley Snipes really Wesley Snipes is really cool and I uh, it see, just I... it seemed like that just that kind of movie well, I mean well, there's a couple of things that I mean on on, on Wesley Snipes I, I watching this I found it difficult to believe that the Wesley Snipes of this and the Wesley Snipes of Demolition Man were the same person because <laughs> he's just got no charm or charisma in this film oh, at all he's just no, sullen I, yeah I completely agree um, whereas as you, know, you look at something like Demolition Man and it shows what Wesley Snipes is like when he's having fun in a film mm-hmm. um, but just to I mean and this might sort of actually be taking us into the narrative of the film which you might not want to get to yet but Saying that it's not really like a comic book movie, the thing that really struck me was that about the opening ten minutes or so, if you take out the fact that he's brutally murdering a load of people and it's incredibly violent, those opening ten or fifteen minutes are basically the opening ten or fifteen minutes of a Batman film. (laughs) Aside from the fact that he's killing vampires, everything about how that plays out, how he arrives on the scene, how he acts, how he escapes from the police and climbs out of a vent, it's just... This is Batman. This guy. This they have wanted to make a Batman film, but they don't have the rights to Batman, so they've <laughs> they've done it with this vampire hunter. Now, admittedly, it does move away from that eventually. But watching it, it struck me how comic booky it felt in those opening scenes, in I terms of just going by the conventions of what tends to happen in the opening twenty minutes of a superhero film, especially in in and before that era. I think the opening ten or fifteen minutes were my favourite part as well. I think I, I, <laughs> really? I really, I, yeah, I really liked everything for about the first fifteen. minutes minutes yeah that that was my least favorite part like by the end of that basically by the end of the nightclub scene i was completely off board with the movie like i actually enjoyed some of the later stuff more than that oh we're 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 gonna have a real fun podcast here (laughs) (laughs) um well should we should we talk about that opening then so it starts off where we get this flashback to blades kind of origin which you know like we spend 30 seconds on um although there will be a twist uh which is that his his pregnant mother is bitten by a vampire and he is he is kind of born while his mother is dying from this vampire bite so he is born kind of half human half vampire um, and we hear p- people very swiftly referring to him as a daywalker so while like <coughs> while the whole mythology around him isn't like explicitly explained until probably about halfway through the film. I think we all get the idea. Half human, half vampire, but likes to hunt vampires. And then we we cut to this nightclub scene, which is a nightclub run by the villain, uh, Deacon Frost, Stephen Dorff, who we'll get to, uh, where uh, this this kind of human guy has been lured there by a vampire. And it's pretty much a rave at which the sprinklers turn on and spray blood everyone. While um, vampire Donald Logue is sat at the side making out with one girl, while another one gives him head. It's a really bizarre opening. I was kind of I think that's going to stand by for all time as the only blowjob in a Marvel movie. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Logue, who showed up in Ghost Rider as well, and now is in Gotham. He's got a real, uh, he's got a real sideline in dark but silly comic book properties. I mean, it was just the moment when the sprinklers come on and they're full of blood. Like, I just thought, how how can you take this movie seriously if it thinks that is a like that's in any way 
cool or threatening or whatever. I don't know what effect it was trying to achieve. I thought it was, it was cool. Like, I thought it was like this a really... This is the a stupidest really, thing I've ever seen. I thought it was a really cool, twisted, like, visually <laughs> twisted... Really? Um, it was yeah. like, if I'd seen it, if, it's, if I'd seen it in um, From Dust Till Dawn, maybe... But that film had set itself up as having a sense of humour, whereas this one had not. No, but this, but that that is the film setting up its kind of mo within the first couple of minutes. I liked all the early silliness, and the, the kind of later when it got bogged down in the plot, that was when I was a little bit less excited. But See, I kind I, of I, I kind didn't... of liked that it was all a little bit kinky. Like I said, that Donald Logue is getting head in the side, and like most of the female vampires are dancing around in kind of. Uh, in in their bras and and there's this weird guy. Uh, it was like, so it was so teenage. It was just like the yeah. the first thing you think of, like ah, uh, you know, how can I make this rave scene seem edgy? Oh, people are having sex. There's blood in the ceiling. Like okay, <laughs> like you know, this is a good story, but you know, don't don't hand it into your teacher. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But then Blade turns up. And um, Blade uh, basically goes around showing you all of his different types of weaponry and taking out vampires in in in, in various uh, inventive ways. And I, uh, another thing that I quite liked about this film is that uh, Wesley Snipes seemed to be doing most of his stunts himself, and there was there's quite a, there was quite a lot of carefully choreographed action and. I, I actually thought all the practical effects were pretty cool. Like so, I, so I liked like the, the, I liked the the fact that the, the you know the, I li- I thought the blood showering down on them looked good, and I thought some of the actual fighting and stuff looked looked pretty impressive as well. When the CGI takes over, Oof. less so. Um, <laughs> but there's one particular moment right towards the end. Yeah, um, yeah. we're all thinking of it. Yeah, <laughs> which which was almost almost a lot worse as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so I, I I really liked Blade turning up and kicking ass, and I, I like I said I've had such such a little ex- maybe it's that I watched Blade Trinity and just didn't find Blade cool at all that I was kind of stunned by how much I did like Wesley Snipes here and just thought like everything about his costume with his half shaved head and his tattoos and his tiny little glasses and his um, and his bulletproof armor and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, see, I, just thought, is- I just thought he looked cool. I was this is like this is the kind of thing that like can you imagine like Blade's supposed to be like this you know super competent vampire hunter like how much time does he spend on his personal grooming <laughs> like is that all he does when he's not hunting vampires he's like I've, I've got to go and get my hair cut touched up like uh, I need the, some cooler tattoos because these ones are fading a bit I think Whistler just does it all for him while he's uh, getting his serum <laughs> Chris Christopher like, Whistler so, amazing this is, that's what I mean like it was so kind of so kind of needy in in how it wanted to stand out and look cool that it spent more time in looking cool than being cool but he turns up and kills all the vampires yeah because... well what he does actually he turns up and poses a bit and then gives a speech and then kills the vampires and he does that a lot he, and he like, does, if it, he's supposed he does to be, it in uh, full-on 90s movie star way which is <laughs> hey look wesley because no one was turning up to watch a blade movie people were turning to what turning up to watch a wesley snipes movie it's hey here is wesley snipes look at how cool he looks and now watch him kick ass for a bit and occasionally well, that, quit like, i think i think that's it's fine that's, but i didn't go to see it <laughs> yeah i think it, if that's something that you want to see from a film wesley snipes doing martial arts then great but to be honest i think you, i mean that hits on what maybe my biggest problem with this film is is that two genres of film that i'm probably the least interested in are horror and martial arts so 
put the two of them together and <laughs> yeah I'm not really bothered <laughs> okay well I'm gonna guilt you both into saying something positive about this movie now because, um, I'm gonna play the race card isn't it really great that we had in the late 90s a black movie star playing a like uh, making a black comic book character prominent and the fact that the movie then casts the uh, the female lead as black as well, and that there are various characters that kind of show up around the background of the film as well, um, it's it's quite a racially diverse movie. And then and they make all the heroes black apart from Chris Christopherson, and all the villains white. Um, and apart from that's, Blade's mum, yes, well, yeah, but she was a hero turned a villain. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, we. We haven't seen that happen again mm. since Blade, which I mean, it is. It's actually pretty appalling that the last <laughs> that Blade comic the last book time movie, it happened, yeah. yeah, with with a, with a black lead was Blade Trinity. It's just it's just stupefying. Yeah, and really. it's not like it didn't make its money either. Well, yeah. exactly. You know, they, they, this is the. I mean, essentially, and something we haven't really talked about in terms of context, but this film kind of is probably the thing that started off the process of saving Marvel from bankruptcy, yeah, isn't it? By, well, by proving that their their property has had some value yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, yeah. it's what enabled probably X-Men to go on and get made. And I mean, you know, this film comes from a point where Marvel were basically dead. Yeah, I and, think and look they at may what have Marvel even been... Now. They were probably in Chapter 11 at this point, even. Yeah, so... I mean, I can at least give it an awful amount of credit for that. It's like other people obviously loved it, even if I don't. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, the fact that it made so much money and was such a big hit should surely be evidence that you can take uh, a black lead superhero character and put him in his own film and people will go to see it. It's... It, is, it really is an indictment, isn't it? And I'm just looking that they, they were like... the Yeah, so what you said about LL Cool J being interested and that... Uh, when Goya actually got you know some backing to to get the film going, they were looking at either Snipes or Denzel Washington or Lawrence Fishburne. So like around then, there were big movie stars who were black who could you know there were there were big movie stars to choose from for this role. Mm. And um, you know <laughs> the, fact, fair, the fact that days, nothing has happened got, since. You've still got Lawrence Fishburne and Denzel Washington and Wesley Snipes. Yeah, they are all still around. Wesley's out of jail again as well, so that is <laughs> so that is nice. He's back available in the player on NBC. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, I, I was just. It shouldn't be something that you that you want to heap praise on a film for doing because you, it should just be it shouldn't it shouldn't be this surprising. But I I was I was pleasantly surprised as well that the female lead was was black as well that it wasn't. Just- if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just like, because I bet it would have been so easy to put a pretty blonde alongside him. I don't know what happens in the sequels. Well, Ryan Reynolds and... Uh, Jessica Biel are in the third one, aren't they? So that that's what happened two films down the line. That's say something nice about the film, guys. No, yeah, that's I completely agree with that. Like it, it's embarrassing. I do actually have other nice things to say about. It's the embarrassing film. that it's been seventeen years, and that's you know yeah. it's still one of the few around. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So should we should we talk about um, Karen who? Blade meets in the next scene when he goes to the hospital. Um, it's something that the film doesn't really draw attention to, but the fact that Blade decides to kill Donal Logue in a... He, he's, he actually says, I'm bored of like staking everyone, I'm going to burn you instead. So decides to burn Donal Logue to death, except doesn't get to finish it in time and has to leave. So Donal Logue doesn't fully die, ends up at the hospital where he... Uh, bites one guy who eventually is transformed into a vampire and also bites Karen, who is going to be our, our co-lead for the rest of the movie. And that's all Blade's fault. <laughs> for him for him being a little bit a little bit too arrogant and the film never really draws attention to that like and it, re- it reminded me of it, I was reminded of it again later in the film where Blade decides he will take on Deacon Frost and Deacon as a result just throws this little girl in front of a bus mm. <laughs> and Blade like literally he goes after Deacon before he tries to save the girl it's only after he's like oh no I can't catch her um He's a bit of a dick, isn't he? <laughs> Second week well, in a row, we've got a bit of a dick as the lead of our. Uh, of in our fairness, movie. like in in the comics, one of Blade's traits is that he's kind of single-minded about killing vampires to pretty much the exclusion of everything else. I did. I, that I, was I did the like case, that. He should have just polished off Donald, whatever Donald well, Logue's yeah. character's name is straight away. The fact that he dithers over it is is the yeah. problem. Well, it, it's, mean, it's kind it's, of it's, it's, kind, it's kind of like he relishes. It. it does drive it home, like that he's kind of like he he does kind of enjoy doing this, and he and he really wants to inflict pain on the on the vampires while he's doing it. Yeah, I mean it's in character for him for him to kill a vampire rather than save someone. Like he you know, he'll kill good vampires if he gets half a chance. Oh, that's interesting. Um and he does uh <laughs> 
He does. He does say deliver one of my favorite lines of the film, and this is why I can't. I, I like. I just. I'm not sure that I think the movie does take itself seriously the whole way through. Like that. That for, what bogs it down for me is the plot being so kind of standard like vampire tropey and oh there's going to be this big prophecy and we need to do this and this to fill in the thing and you need to do this and this uh, I mean it's, and it's, it's a good job it came out kind of stuff. it's a good job it came out before Underworld I'm saying that much <laughs> but yeah it was, uh, one of my favourite lines is uh, is him uh, like when he goes to the hospital to finish off Donald Logan meets Karen and uh, the hospital security turn up and they start shooting at him and he just goes motherfucker are you out of your damn mind <laughs> I was giggling for uh, for a good thirty seconds after he said that. I was like, "Yes, this is this is the film I want to watch. I want to watch um, Blade getting angry and 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 being cool and taking down vampires." And but instead, he he saves Karen's life. He uh, he de- he decides that even though she's been bitten, he's going to save her. Um, and luckily, she's a hematologist. <laughs> Yeah. So it's one of those moments in a film where it's like, okay, who are we going to team him up with? Oh, so, hema, hematologist? Can we can we do that? Yep. She's an expert on blood and she's going to be teaming up with the vampire in this movie. Um, what did you think of her, guys? Were you a fan, were you a fan of Karen? She's played by Mbushe, right? I, I could be absolutely butchering that name. Uh, I mean, she was pretty two-dimensional, to be fair, wasn't she? Wasn't mm. she? Yeah, I mean, you know, she she's there, and there's nothing particularly uh, bad about <laughs> the, the ride school, the patrol, which in this kind of film isn't necessarily a given. So uh, we should be thankful that you know, apart from that one incredibly euphemistic scene with the biting, uh, the scene that basically sort of <laughs> takes the place of what would be your your standard love scene at that point in the film. You know, there's not there's nothing particularly sort of badly done about her portrayal. She's yeah. just not particularly interesting. I mean, I was I was spending the whole film going like, oh, please don't fridge her, and yeah. they didn't. So yeah, to their credit, she lived to the end. And actually, and you know, she plays a significant role in like actually seeing the plot through to its conclusion. Um, well, yeah, she, she she is responsible for the weapon that Blade uses mm. to eventually win and. Yeah, I, I think actually the film. You, I, I think this is a film where you can accuse it of writing a role for a woman that she doesn't have. She, you know, she doesn't have anything to do, or she doesn't, or or she's written particularly badly. I think it's a, it's 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 a pretty decent role that might be a little at times a, a little bit too much in service of the plot, but otherwise, <clears throat> it also kind of. I mean, she does get kidnapped towards the end, but. It's it's never too sort of only having her be there to be damsel in distress, and she kind of she has a decent amount of agency aside from Blade. It's like her plot kind of ends up deviating from Blade's because you have this whole thing where you know she's trying to cure herself and she offers him the opportunity to cure himself, but then he actually doesn't want to do so, and they kind of part ways at the end. And it's sort of you know her while her story is sort of inextricably linked with Blade's to begin with. Um, she kind of gets her own conclusion and gets to sort of go off at the end of her story. I mean, I'm presuming she's not in the sequels. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think she is, no. Um, But it's, yeah, and actually, so yeah, I mean, like, as a character, she's not too reliant on the lead. You know, the story gets to be about her and how she solves her problem as well. And so actually, yeah, I was (laughs) a little bit down on it just in terms of I don't think she kind of says anything particularly interesting or is especially, you know, kind of well-written or anything. But, you know, 
again, it's it's small victories, but for a film like this to do that with a female character, um, and it's not something that Goya always has a great track record for. It doesn't always have a bad track record for it, but doesn't always have a great track record for it. So, you know, credit where credit's due, really. <laughs> but I, I do kind of wonder, actually, if while not finding it massively interesting, if the film had been better being more from Karen's perspective because I just don't think Blade works very well as a as a lead lead uh, there's nothing you can really well, that's hang the thing, isn't on it? him like if- and I think you need to be seeing him from the outsider's perspective you know for him to be this kind of aloof, yeah. cool like, guy, we we criticised or I criticised her for being sort of two dimensional, but Blade's kind of one dimensional, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> like he's he's fighting in one liners and killing vampires. Like, if there's any any kind of subtext there or any hidden depths, like they're well hidden. I don't know. I I, I got I got, a, I got a definite kind of underlying sadness from Wesley Snipes' performance, like this kind of. Yes, he is introduced as this kind of like badass quipping vampire killer, but the the more you kind of like see him when he's not fighting and hunting vampires, he seems like there is there's just a real kind of underlying yeah like melancholia to the character and um and that that's all tied in that's all tied in with what happened to his mother and the fact that he is kind of he is the thing he hates and the thing that he despises and then when you do get that twist at the end it's it's not a particularly interesting plot twist but it's it's a kind of a tragic one for that character and um i actually found myself feeling for blade quite a lot during that last 20 minutes where he's going through the you know the meeting his mum and the sacrifice and all that kind of stuff i get what you're saying but i think just by that point i had long since before then stopped caring about what was happening in the film I, something i really <laughs> struggled with I just uh, the stakes. No, <laughs> uh, oh dear, <laughs> oh, that wasn't deliberate. Um, I didn't get any sense of of the stakes of the film, um, and it just, you know, it's going through the plan and they're doing the the their ritual and it's just all. I think pro- I think probably actually part of the problem is sort of the the plan, the evil plan, doesn't really have anything to do with blade i mean i know they kind of there's something about oh his his blood is key to it or whatever but it just seems i suppose well i suppose it is connected to it in that sense but it just seemed a bit too but that, uh, yeah i know what separate. you mean it doesn't it doesn't play into him until later it's more that blade is a vampire hunter who has crossed deacon frost by attacking his his yeah club. that's the thing it's like it's like De- deacon frost has this plan where he's destroying all the old guard of vampires and becoming a new sort of super fab- powerful strain of new vampire and it's but almost blade, it's almost a coincidence that it happens yeah, that after exactly, those two have crossed that's, paths that's just happening at the same time as blade just happens to be going after him just because he's an evil vampire he's not going after him to stop that plan he's just going after him to go after him and it's so the two storylines just don't really. Whenever you cut back to Deacon and Deacon's got all of his stuff going on with what he's doing with the other vampires, which incidentally is, I mean, we'll get on to to Deacon, but that's I think that's some of the better stuff in the film. That just has no relation to Blade. And every time they cut back to that, it's like that plot has not moved on. What is happening with Blade? One iota. It does. You know? It does feel sort of like Blade should have been going after him because it was him who killed his mother, yeah. rather than it. Yeah, that's that's, that's thrown in the there as a line towards the end, isn't it? And yeah. you go kind of like, 
What? Well, really? Well, okay. Well, no, I just kind of went, well, I'd figured that yeah, out I, I, five minutes I was, I was kind of <laughs> expecting that because who else was it going to be? <laughs> like, yeah. You're not hanging that out there and not resolving it. It's like when um, the serum is thrown to one side and the camera follows it over and you're like, hmm, I wonder whether that will be important later. <laughs> Talking of Deacon Frost, then, so Seb, you were talking, you you were saying that's some of the stuff you enjoyed a little bit more. So do you well, do you kind of mean like the the rivalry between Stephen Dorff's Deacon and the yeah. kind of the pure blood vampires? Who I liked, I liked how quickly it set up this idea that um, so Udo Kier plays Dragonetti, which is very on the nose casting, but but well done, uh, Stephen Norrington, it, it works. Um, Udo Kier plays uh, this kind of the probably the head of this old guard of vampires who were all pure bloods, which means they were born vampires, whereas someone like Deacon was transformed, and they kind of have this like they kind of liaise with the human world to an extent. Yeah, I think they. They kind of maintain a. St- I quite like that they sort of just maintain a status quo. It's like we can rule the world by doing so the way that pe- the, the way that people rule the world. Yeah, you know, we don't have to just go out there feasting on humans at night. We'll just, you know, we'll have all this power and money, and and do it. That I quite like that, and I quite like the sort of because actually as well, you would. It's a nice flipping because you would expect in a story about if you've got a story about an old guard and an old order of vampires and then a new younger one who's you know wasn't born a vampire coming along you would kind of think it would be the other way round that the new upstart would be going hang on you don't need to be going out there killing people we can rule the world more insidiously I quite like the fact that Deacon has just got this old fashioned thing of I just want to go out there and kill people mm. and enslave humanity <laughs> you know and, and he's the young upstart for thinking that I, I quite like that yeah. and what did you think of um, Stephen Dorff he spends a lot of time well, with his shirt off which it's is ambitious only, in a movie is, where Wesley Snipes also has his shirt off and Wesley Snipes <laughs> is about triple the size of him. Yeah. He does seem to be pretty much the only person in the film who's having any fun and I think that's why yeah, I liked yeah. him and liked that character. He's just... he's just yeah, That scene just where he um, he bites the neck of the cop who's been hel- helping him out and kind of just slavers the blood over his face while he's doing it and then turns around and makes out and starts licking the blood all over his, <laughs> over that Spanish vampire girl's face. Um, it was just absurd. <laughs> it was really fun. And so, I, I don't know what he was quite playing, Stephen Dorff. It was kind of like um, it's kind of like an extension of the like Gen X early nineties slacker. If he'd become a vampire and just didn't yeah. give a shit and was like, but it was it. Well, you're right. It was really fun. It was less fun I, when he was having to deliver dull expository dialogue, but. <laughs> Yeah, most of the time. Some, something I would like to actually touch on briefly because I've been reminded of it now, so it's a good point to mention it. While I'm talking about clever subversion of what you would expect from vampires, I do not like that this film contained a moment, as all vampire things seem to, where someone carefully explains which bits of, of, <laughs> of what vampires are vulnerable to law are work and which ones don't and that's that's okay i mean you do always get that but what annoys me is when they do it and they act as if you're stupid for believing some of them even though some of the other ones are true so it's like huh you you think they're vulnerable to crosses oh but they are vulnerable to garlic yeah (laughs) it's like garlic has both silver and snakes through the heart and sunlight so you're basically there but that other thing you idiot (laughs) yeah exactly they don't even bring up bodies of water it's ridiculous (laughs) Yeah. Um, but so, so getting back to Deacon, he so this this plan he has, which in, involves Blade's blood. I'm not going to pretend to understand it. To be yeah, honest. he wants Blade's blood to 
fulfill some kind of prophecy and that will turn him into the blood god and then something it's it's I, I mean, I, it's it's when actually talking about the actual plot of this film that I can completely buy into everything that you didn't like about it. <laughs> uh, like it's like, yeah, God, that doesn't mean anything, does it? And I, I really don't care. And you're right; like it does seem like an underworld plot. To be fair, I think Underworld lifted some of these scenes. <laughs> like I can't, I genuinely can't remember because it it just feels so generic. The bit where he's like imprisoned and there's blood dripping into a sigil or whatever, I'm fairly sure that was in Underworld. It was definitely in Buffy. What, what I do quite like is that because this is a film from the late 90s, um, he he uses computers to work out some of the arcane stuff with the plot, <laughs> and that's seen as different and revolutionary, and nobody really trusts it as as a method. <laughs> I always like that, in, <laughs> and terrible computer interfaces in mid to late 90s films <laughs> yeah. are always <laughs> good for a laugh. Yeah, this is this is straight out of the hackers and Johnny Mnemonic school, isn't it? I was yeah. reminded of Blade. Uh, sorry, I was reminded of the Matrix quite a lot watching this, but mm, kind of like all well, the time, sub yeah. sub yeah. Matrixy, and it's interesting they came out a year earlier. But it is that incredibly late nineties, slightly. I mean, it's not you, in most senses you wouldn't call it a cyberpunky film, but the way that Blade dresses and the way that Stephen Dorff's character is, it's, it is very and much sometimes in, in when that, the score that kicks quite in narrow in the period of time scenes. when you had all of those. Yeah, it has it has that feel to it. Uh. Incidentally, as well, talking about the way Blade dresses, I, I love that there is a whole scene where just in broad daylight on the street, Blade is walking around with these, you know, with his costume and his armor and his swords on his back, and he's just beating up a cop, and then he's pointing a gun at somebody, and just nobody <coughs> notices. Everyone's just walking around <laughs> yes, on this street. I, I think it's it in LA. I um, thought for a second, is just... he invisible to humans? <laughs> I genuinely thought that. <laughs> just like. Maybe it's a deliberate thing that it's in LA, so nobody cares, and they just think he's an idiot in a costume. I, like, I did just think it was. <laughs> I like the bit where he's like pointing out the vampires who are like across the street from him, and it's like <laughs> if any of them have turned round, he's screwed. <laughs> but yeah, so so when Blade does eventually get to this face-off and his blood is used and stuff, what did you what how did what did you make of the final showdown? Because it went back to some of the stuff that I liked again, which was. Um, Blade kind of being badass and some close-up um, fighting and like I say the, the fact that it all felt like it was Wesley Snipes doing it all himself was a, a real benefit to me but the fact that he's facing off with Deacon as this blood god is just it's the CGI isn't it like that's mm. that's what ruins it it's horrendous I mean and like I say I really like the, the practical blood in the bloodbath scene at the start and then by the end you've got this CGI blood trickling down things and and it does, you know, and then yeah, and then Deacon Frost turns into a, a character who becomes it turns into the Lawn Merman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That is exactly it, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to be incredibly unfair to Stephen Norrington because one day we're going to do League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> and that will be the time we'll to be unfair be in- to him. Incredibly unfair to him. <laughs> but there's, aside from the fact that it's all you know very moodily lit, there's I don't think there's a lot that's that visually stylish about this. I mean, some of the, some of the kind of practical. There's some horrible, horrible, gory bits, and and they're very well done in terms of being kind of schlocky and all the kind of practical effects. But stuff like the kind of the um, action sequence at the end, and there's a really terrible car chase scene that's got like it's shot in this really weird, deliberately sped up way. It's relatively early in the film. It's I think it's um, yeah, Blades chasing after the cop who's making the delivery, and it's just really and it's just like it's a bit sort of like he's trying to do something cool and music video-y and it just 
oh, it really doesn't come off at all. Mm. I mean, it's... I don't know if you know the bit I'm talking about, but because you were all just sounding blank, but <laughs> I, I, I think I kind of know what you mean. But it, it it goes back to me for this kind of like that everything that felt like it was doing when CGI was coming into play, I found really disappointing because I thought there were some other really, really interesting and inventive stuff that Stephen Norrington was doing. And I don't want to speak to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and how to blame he is for that film because I've watched it once years ago and couldn't tell you where the fault lies with that. But I actually thought that a lot a lot of what Norrington was doing was interesting. And I actually, I was reading uh, Roger Ebert's review of this from, from uh, his original release... Um, and his his first kind of like his introductory paragraph and first paragraph are really interesting. I'm just going to quote from them here because he says, "At a time when too many movies are built from flat TV style visuals of people standing around talking, movies based on comic books represent one of the last best hopes for visionary filmmaking." Um, it's ironic that the comics, which borrowed their early visual style from movies, should now be returning the favor. And then he goes on to say that. Um, it Blade is a movie that relishes high visual style. It uses extreme camera angles, bizarre costumes and sets, exaggerated shadows, confident cutting between long shots and extreme close-up, and slams ahead in pure visceral imagery. And for half of the film, I kind of really agree with everything that he says there. Um, but, yeah, there is also just, like, it, it can cut from something really cool to something just horrendous and it seems to me like a, a, a I mean was Norrington a first time director at this point I'm not sure but a, a kind of a young director who maybe had a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of balls and a lot of ambition but maybe just didn't didn't quite know how to pull everything off or pull everything together There, are, he's clearly got some kind of images in mind that he translates very well but then when it comes to the actual storytelling like it's things like if you have a shot of Blade posing with his sword, that looks cool. But when he's actually fighting, it's not always easy to follow. Like it, sometimes it's just a load of limbs flying everywhere. I, I kind of Most, feel like mostly Donald Logue's limbs, to be fair. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's just like he he's got the vision, but not the ability to translate that vision completely. And and interestingly, so for for that final showdown um and i mean and this comes directly from wikipedia so it could be completely false but i don't think it is um that the film was originally 20 minutes longer and that they had heavy edits and reshoots um mostly uh that the final fight between blade and deacon was replaced so that sword fight that we get didn't exist whatsoever to start with um deacon frost turned into la magra which i think was the blood god right that's the same that was the same thing he actually physically (laughs) turned into it and became a large swirling mass of blood instead of keeping his form and that it was scrapped because they couldn't get the special effects to look quite right (laughs) that that does make a lot of sense (laughs) yeah (laughs) it sounds like a lot of the film could have been scrapped from not getting the special effects quite right it would have been nice if there'd been that discerning for the rest of the movie (laughs) I don't know if you've got... I mean, the, I got the sense from a lot of that kind of stuff that... I mean, and I, I even kind of feel this now, having not seen the film, but there was enough I liked about it and enough potential that I, that I can imagine if I'd have watched this film and then found out six months later, oh, Guillermo del Toro is directing the sequel, I, I'm like, oh, re- okay, yeah, 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 I can see there being a big Marx improvement in the sequel, but also, like, there's enough about it that I like in the first place for me to want to watch a sequel. And I kind of really want to watch Del Toro's Blade 2 now. No. Well, I kind of... <laughs> I, can, I, just, I can see why you might, but no. 
I think the only thing that interests me in, in the second one is the fact that Danny John Jules is in it, and the only thing that interests me in the third one is the fact that Parker Posey is in it. <laughs> the second one has a really good cast. I mean, Chris Christopherson apparently is back. I don't know how that works. Ron Perlman's there. Well, actually, we didn't, we didn't really talk about Whistler, but I did quite like Whistler. Although, I was convinced that because of the fact that they, when he first appears, they're listening to Bad Moon Rising by Credence... A, a song which is so notable for its appearance in American Werewolf in London, I thought he was going to turn out to be a werewolf. And I was like, that, that song that song's not associated with vampires, that song's associated with werewolves. Well, I take it, uh, other than Blade, but would I, like I be right in thinking that probably Deacon and Whistler are Marvel characters as well? I don't know, because I haven't read enough comics with Blade in them. <laughs> no, no. I would imagine that he must come from... Uh, oh no, no he no, was created for the film say, and then he's been worked into the he, comics later no, he was, um, the first thing he was in was the Spider-Man animated series wow that's fascinating, wait so he was created oh, for yeah. the Spider-Man animated series no, well, this is Wikipedia but he was created for the film but he was used in Spider-Man the animated series and that came out first oh really? <laughs> I mean that makes <laughs> sense but yeah because okay. they, I think because they'd written the film so many years before uh, um, yeah I guess that makes sense yeah but actually no he hasn't been in the comics yet which is interesting okay but I mean, it's not that bit, interesting because he's just microchip really isn't he but Deacon <laughs> definitely has yes I think you're going to catch me out here I'm pretty sure Deacon Frost exists in existed separately from Blade I, th- I think his first yeah he's from Tomb of Dracula he actually predates Blade okay, wow okay in Tomb of Dracula yeah. But yeah, like he, you know, he's one of those characters who would have been in the license just for appearing in the same comics. So they could have made they could have made Dracula the villain, but obviously Deacon Frost is slightly more oh, no. interesting. He doesn't predate him. He postdates him by a few months. <laughs> okay. But he did, he appeared independently of him, I think is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this we're supposed to know all this. Stuff. Well, this is <laughs> it comes like it comes back stuff. to the problem of Blade has never really worked in comics. So it's going to make the recommendations section yeah. fun. But I mean, do you think he necessarily? I mean, because Wesley Snipes has talked recently about how he's like spoken to Marvel and that there might be a chance of him being reintroduced in some way. And I mean, <laughs> is that not just because Wesley Snipes needs the work? Well, yeah. I, I mean, probably. I mean, because when when I heard it, I mean, we we've never stuck that into the news section on the podcast just because when I heard it, I was like, <clears throat> yeah, that's Wesley Snipes saying in it, saying it, and I'm yeah. just. I'm just not at all convinced. I mean, I could see... But the, but having said that, I could see a way that, given that Blade is a character who has some cultural cachet because of these three movies, that there could be a way to rework him back in. I mean, Netflix would seem like an obvious kind of place for, say, for a, like, a series. I think that's the host if he did that, because those films are popular, so, yeah. you know... But, um, I, but well, I, I'm just not sure whether introducing Blade, like Wesley Snipes' Blade, into the current Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, the, would th- ma- the thing make is, a huge it's the tone sense. of the movies, isn't it? Like the tone of the movies is so far away from what Marvel would allow on their licenses to do mm. on screen now. Mm. Like they, you're right, they would do it. They could do it in a Netflix series, but they emphatically could not do an MCU Blade movie because it's just too off-brand. <laughs> Well, it would or it'd probably also, end up looking like you know Ghost Rider two in terms of you know like this is this is this concept, but this is as much as we can do with it because this is this is an eighteen rated movie, and we talk we talk about like Donald Logue you know getting head in that opening scene, but like there is a lot of like weirdly like I mean it, it's a vampire story, so there is going to be some kind of kinky sexual stuff, but like 
The moment when Blade's transformed mum was kind of rubbing her lip up against him <laughs> while she was putting him into a into a big container that was gonna like bleed him out. This, that this was weird that was the only moment I felt sorry for Blade. <laughs> it was like, oh man, it's got so weird for you. This isn't what you signed up for. Do you know what I mean about in that final act feeling really bad for the guy? Like I was like, I genuinely did have the feels for Blade. He was just about to have his wrists slashed for this ancient ritual, and he just found out his mum, who he thought was dead, wasn't actually dead. She's a vampire, and now she's licking his face. <laughs> yeah, none of that is pleasant. But what do what do you think of the eighteen rating in general? Because well, I mean, we're not going to get many comic book movies that are eighteen rated. I mean, we'll we'll probably get like a hand handful here and there do, do you think it, it made the most of it or do you, do you think it justified it because I, I think it kind of felt it felt right for the movie that i was watching i would say like most 18 rated films it appeals to a wide demographic of 13 year olds <laughs> <laughs> i think it's just yeah i mean the, there's a lot of quite impressive gore but i'm not really a gore fan so and what the heck was going on with the big fat lad what was oh, going God, on? Yeah. That, was a, that was a, a horrible, woman. weird scene. Was it a woman? Yeah, I think it, no, because I thought it was a woman. Yeah. But then they said he towards the end of I the scene. I think they did say he. Yeah, yeah. That confused me, but yeah, you know. But but I think there are, there are moments where it was used really effectively, like particularly when he kills his boss. Um, although it's a, it, the film is pretty inconsistent over how I don't understand how um, Deacon and his lot aren't. I know. It, when he fully bursts in the full sunlight, they're wearing um, motorcycle jackets and helmets. Which I think, but I think it's hilarious, by the way, that they can protect themselves from the sun with motorcycle helmets and sun, sun cream. Because it's like, why don't they just go out all the time wearing sun cream? Uh, there was, um, that, that's I don't one really of those, why they're not affected. That's one of those scene, moments where you're just like, okay, yeah, this this is a screenwriter who I don't really. Um, it's no surprise that I don't always warm to David S. Goy's work when he's finding a way to have them face off in the street by just going, uh, say he's wearing sun cream. And, yeah. and um, like, like you're talking about this enormous coincidence that happens, you know, that gets um, Blade and Deacon's stories to cross. Like, there's no... It's just like, oh, big coincidence that helps me out in the middle of the movie rather than laying these tracks a little bit more subtly or thinking a little bit harder about how I can structure the first half of the film so it so it's not just a coincidence that makes it all come together. I think I think it would be fair to say that this isn't the worst script that David Goya's name is on. <laughs> but it's far from the best. Yeah. But what it probably is is it's an incredibly David Goya script. Like it, it, it bears a lot of the things that I think you would characterise his work with. some of some of the dialogue is atrocious. It's like it's really, really bad. Um, some of the some of the conversation. I mean, Chris Christopherson gets saddled with a lot of it, and I, I, to be honest, for for a lot of the time, I was surprised that he'd put up with that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, in terms of, I know, I know what you mean about the film taking itself very seriously, but like it 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 kind of like just flips between taking itself seriously and having fun. So the fact that. Blade kind of signs off the movie by saying some motherfuckers are always trying to skate uphill. I skate uphill. That's a that's a really funny line, and it's a, it's a great sign off in a way that a nineties action movie like structured around a movie star would tend to have those lines. But at the same time, it's completely out of place at that moment. <laughs> I did. It, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was like every so often, someone would say to Wesley Wesley Snipes, like, "Hey, Wes." Let's have some fun in the scene. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. 
Just this one, though, right? Just, just this, this scene, one. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's another. I'm just. I'm just. In fact, I'm just looking at the. Um, just looking at the quotes. I mean, Donald Lowe gets to say quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of funny nonsense. Like when he says, "I'm going to be naughty. I'm going to be a naughty vampire god." <laughs> he might have been my MVP in this film. I really like Donald Logue. I am like I am still for my sins. I've gone back and I caught up with Gotham and I'm watching it and still not very good. But it is, it's at least it's at least entertaining because you never quite know it's going to come next. And like you know, the worst of Agents of Shield, which is just a trudge. It's not it's not out and out bad, but it's a trudge. But Donald Logue is consistently like my favourite part of that show, and I think he makes it watchable. And I think he made almost every scene he was in here watchable as well. Most of them, maybe not the very first one. <laughs> what, mean, when it's, he was, <laughs> it's faint, it's faint your praise. <laughs> faint praise to say uh, he made this film watchable. It's faint praise from you. It's big praise from me. I love you, Donald Logue, and I think you were very good in this movie. He's always reliably scuzzy when he shows up, and uh, I always appreciate him for that. You two, you guys really didn't like this movie, did you? Uh, to, to the point where you're struggling to find things to say about it, good or bad. <laughs> is, that, is that fair? I, I can see why people like it, and I can see that at the time that it came out, I can see why it had the effect that it did. It's just, it's so incredibly of its time. Like, it's it's a late 90s film that is best watched in the late 90s, and I just found it a slog. Yeah. Like- and it, I think that's partly because I don't really like the genre anyway, but I just found it a slog to get through. It just wasn't much fun, yeah, apart from like, a few I, fleeting moments. I, I don't think it's incompetent at what it's doing, but I just have no interest in what it's doing. Like, it's... You know, I didn't see it at the time, and that was when I was at the right age to go and watch it. So, whereas I will settle for enjoyable nonsense. Uh, so it's uh, <laughs> it's just about a thumbs up from me. Um, but I'll probably, I think I'll probably be trying to twist your guys' arms to uh, to get us to do Blade Two anytime so- <laughs> anytime soon on the podcast. Um, We've got to say something for next Halloween. Yeah, we do. And uh, a little tease: we are going to have some. We we are going to be continuing with something slightly. Uh, Slightly horror well, inflexed next next I was time. Say, on the I, I didn't as well. know if you wanted to to spoiler that, but I will say that yeah, the next thing that we're going to do is also in in genre that I'm not that keen on, but which is a film that now I haven't rewatched it recently yet, but that I remember very much enjoying when I first saw it. So mm. there's a little you know, what, it's not all bad. What a tease! <laughs> what a tease! I want to say what it is, but God, you've got to wait until the end of the podcast. Um, okay, guys, what have you? Uh, what uh, what comics are you going to recommend me based on Blade? Um, I would be very surprised based on what you've said already if both if both of them feature the character of Blade. But we'll see. Or if either of them feature the character <laughs> yeah. of Blade. That might be more to the point. Seb and I discussed this before, and I I kind of feel duty bound to give you a Blade comic to read, just because you know that's that's why I'm here is to learn about comics, really. So. I'm going to recommend... There's only... In my entire life, I've only bought one issue of a comic with Blade's name on the front. And it is contained within this collection, which is Blade Undead Again by Mark Guggenheim and Howard Chaikin. Um, Ooh, that that is actually in um, the Marvel's Mightiest Heroes issue about Blade, <laughs> by the way. So you could pick always, it up Always, always on the job. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, that is, the, that is what they collected in, in Marvel's yeah, Mightiest yeah. Heroes. I mean, I can see why they would do that. Uh, it came out in 2007, like the, so it's... It must be like the third time we've done that, Seb. It must be a really good series that they're putting together. <laughs> it's really, really good, yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's from 2007, so it's not completely influenced by the movies. But in coming after the movies, like they they did that thing of changing the character to to be more like the more popular incarnation. Which, you know, to me, some people get really worked up about that, but to me it makes sense. And the reason I own this collection is because uh, an issue from this collection is because issue six was a Civil War tie-in. So that would be your first look at Civil War as well, in a in a way. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether I should be excited about that or not, based on what you told me in the past. <laughs> it's very, but, um, it's very peripheral. I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm de- definitely intrigued by Civil yeah, War. I'm I mean, sure I'm going to get around to the other. The, whole the other thing, thing about this series, about this collection, sorry, is that it's got a lot of Marvel Universe characters in. So you'll see Blade interacting with like Spider-Man and Doctor Doom and Wolverine and stuff. So in that sense, you know, it's a kind of. It's a good introduction to Blade's context within the Marvel Universe. Like all Blade comics, it's tedious and was cancelled very quickly. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Seb, have you got anything less tedious to recommend me? Well, I think so, but it it bears little to no actual direct relation to Blade. Um, In fact, it's a DC comic. what's What's the tenuous link that you've come up with to recommend me something that you like? Okay, so this is actually a DC, well, a DC Vertigo comic. Um, and it is called Welcome Back to the House of Mystery. And it is from... I think it's about 1998. Um, I have it here so I can check. <laughs> the Hang year on. that Blade was released. Chop, chop me looking it up. Actually, if it is the year that Blade was released, that makes quite a nice tie-in. <laughs> so I will. It is. It's from July 98. Brilliant. Wow, and you planned that okay. ahead and everything, didn't you? <laughs> Can I go back and restart? <laughs> no, I want to leave it in like last week when we did with James. <laughs> All right. Apparently um, one so of the yeah. most entertaining moments in our podcast ever. So that's... Uh, well, was, we should yeah. just leave in all the mistakes from now on. I'm going to throw in some intentional ones. <laughs> you mean we weren't already? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so welcome back to the House of Mystery from 1998, which is basically a, a repackaged collection. It's got it's got a new framing story by um, Neil Gaiman and the cartoonist Sergio Aragones from Mad Magazine, who is brilliant. Um, but it's a repackaging of various strips from the original House of Mystery comic that I mentioned earlier, and also Plop, which was another DC horror comic of the 70s. So Plop. it's just basic. Yeah, it was called Plop. Seriously, <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Well, he's trumped your like recommendation, it, James. It was a kind like of a it was a kind of chocolate bar. Plop was a kind of humor horror type <laughs> thing. It's plop with an exclamation mark. Of course it is. Of course um, it is. Oh god. Yeah. Actually, there's there is on on the Wikipedia page Sergio Aragones tells the story of how they came up with the name. Um so you can go and read that. Anyway, <laughs> so really, it's just it, it, it's a collection of these kind of short anthology horror stories, but the kind of horror twist in the tale type things. So it's just to kind of give you a sense of the type of stuff that was around in the way of horror comics in the 1970s that is the tradition that Blade kind of comes out of. Now, admittedly, these stories are they're very similar in style to the kind of 1950s EC. Um, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and if you if you like these, you should go back and read those because they're even better. But these are all quite good takeoffs of that style of story, but with writers and artists who were some of them you, um, are recognisable as going as doing like superhero stuff for DC as well, like Neil Adams and, and Jim Aparo and stuff. But also they're the kind of people who would be doing like horror type comics over at Marvel, um, like not exactly the same creators, but the same generation and type of creators. So. 
it's not the kind of story that Blade appeared in, but it's that 70s horror comics tradition that he comes from. So given that I can't recommend you anything directly about Blade, I might as well recommend you something that I know is good and is horror-orientated, because we've never recommended you a horror comic before. So this is what horror comics are like, basically. Excellent. Okay. Um, we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. Um, and this week is pretty simple. I'm going to, again, keep it, keep it <coughs> horror-themed for our Halloween special. I want me to pitch your ultimate superhero meets vampires movie. So this could be any current movie superhero or just like any one that we haven't seen, but just like where a superhero is interacting with vampires on the big screen. Um, And Seb, I'll come to you first. Okay, so there's this teenage girl and uh, she has superpowers and she lives in a town that's kind of situated on like a kind of gateway to hell. And so, like, in the town, there's all these vampires, and she has to go around and slay them using her powers. It's very good, Seb, but you are also advocating a new Buffy movie. That's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. We saw the Buffy movie, and it didn't go very well. Weren't they they trying to go ahead with a new Buffy movie, but without Joss Whedon? I'm pretty sure that's on the back burner somewhere. <laughs> uh, well, Seb, you've advocated that. It's uh, it's an open goal for James. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, don't call his idea bad until you've heard mine. <laughs> okay, so kind of my problem with this idea, right, is that it's one of the reasons that I kind of switch off whenever Dracula turns up in the Marvel universe. Is that vampires and superheroes are essentially like two different metaphors, like. They they don't work when you mash them together because there there's no like common ground between them. It's like when you try and cross over the Fantastic Four and X Men. Like notionally, there's common ground, but there's nothing you can actually build a story on. And likewise, the same is true of vampires. Like vampires aren't threatening if you can punch down a building. So when you mash together superheroes and vampires, you end up with something stupid, which is why I'm going to pitch Fantastic Four versus vampires. It's the stupidest superhero idea I can think of. <laughs> you guys never respect my pictures. I can't make either of those. It can't be worse than the last Fantastic Four film. That's true. Um, maybe there were vampires in it. Um, what, if, what if you... You know how, like, in Alias, Jessica Jones goes around and, like, experiences different corners of the Marvel Universe? What if there's just one, like, one episode of the new Jessica Jones show where she, like... She beats a vampire. What about that? Yeah, but but then you're like, well, why are there vampires hanging around in the superhero universe? Just one. We never speak of it again. I feel like that's a better idea than both of yours. If it was a mutant who had vampire-style powers and decided to to model themselves on the vampire of legend... I think think the thing is, Joe... Okay, I'm changing my pitch to that. We know by now. (laughs) X-Men versus vampires. (laughs) Um, thing is, Joe, we know by now that whatever we suggest, you're just going to have your own pitch with. Yeah, that's so, true. Although you know, mine wasn't that good. That's why we're not trying. So. How does Spider-Man... So, so we never talked about Morbius in Spider-Man. How does he work? Like, cause... Badly. Well, Morbi- that's the thing. Like, Morbius isn't actually a vampire. He's a guy who experimented on himself and accidentally yeah. gave himself the exact powers of a vampire. Which is I mean, different, fair, but fair, yeah. If they were ever going to do vampires in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's the only way they could fit, because you don't have Supernatural in the Marvel Cinematic Universe at the moment. Uh, so uh, they would have <laughs> to be Strange. Morbius, basically. Yeah. 
Well, we, don't, we haven't seen him yet. We don't. We don't know exactly how his powers are yeah. going to work yet. So I'm, let's not count. But the aren't chickens. we expecting Dormammu? <laughs> or was that not who you were telling me to probably expect as the villain? Dormammu could be a bloke who's experimented on himself to give himself right. a, a flaming head. <laughs> 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 All right. No, they, they obviously are now going supernatural. Yeah. But up to this, they point, were hedging their bets. Could not introduce vampires. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's hmm? not mystic. It's science. Could yeah. Doctor Strange fight, fight vampires on some weird astral plane? He, right, he could, yeah. I d- all I want is you to take my pictures seriously. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so how about Doctor Strange is on a plane and he fights vampires? <laughs> That's what you just said. Vampires suggested, on right? a plane? Yeah, Strange is on a plane. plane. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd watch I, that. I, I mean, Samuel L. Jackson could be in it. I, you couldn't put Samuel L. Jackson in a Marvel <laughs> film. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> I feel like what's just happened is that you've both made a mockery of this pitch section and that I tried to I tried to save it and it only got worse and we've talked around the issue for a good five minutes now and yes, established, my pitch was bad and the answers are bad and nobody wins here, not even the listeners. They've had to sit here and listen to it and I apologise to everyone. We'll do much better next week. Nobody wins, no points. You're all grounded. Go to your rooms. <sighs> that seems fair. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic Four versus Zombies like 10 years 10 years of Marvel Zombies comics you can't tell me Fantastic Four versus Vampires it isn't that good you've already told me that on the podcast <laughs> like at the start and again just now no points for everyone okay uh. Right, well, if you're enjoying the show, listeners, then please subscribe <laughs> on iTunes or Stitcher or Player FM or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review and we'll give you a shout out on a future show, I guess. Uh, you can find more episodes of Cin- I'll, I'll, I'll cheer up now. You can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe on cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com or as we're a Film Divider podcast at filmdivider.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Uh, happy Halloween, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Good night out there, whatever you are. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. There are things that go bump in the night, Agent Myers. Make no mistake about that. And we are the ones who bump back. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Hellboy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.